You are now listening to the Claim It Podcast with me, your host, Trisha Huffman, your joyologist. On this podcast, I love to have conversations with people getting into the journey of their lives, not just the most recent shiny thing or what they're best known as, but let's go through how did they get here? Because through this, you get to see the humanness of everyone and the twists and turns and, you know, switching careers and figuring things out and things not working out, all of that. And my hope is that by you hearing other people's stories more behind the scenes, it helps you give yourself more compassion to see that your life isn't over, you're not too young or too old or whatever you're telling yourself you are too much of or not enough of, right? (laughs) This life is yours. And I really love having these conversations with such amazing humans. And today is another amazing human, Cindy Spiegel. Wow. So I knew some things about Cindy, but I did not know her whole journey. And it was really incredible to hear her story. I know you are going to love Cindy. You're going to love this conversation. And also, you're going to love her new book, which is called Micro Joys. Micro Joys. Micro Joys. Obviously, I was all in for this. Finding hope, especially when life is not okay. That's the subtitle. So she went through a lot in the last couple of years and, you know, kind of lost the connection to joy. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you. We're going to talk about it in the, in the episode. You're going to hear all about it. <laughs> so before I say here we go, please do me a favor and follow slash subscribe to the podcast. And if you haven't yet, can you leave a rating if you're on Spotify or a written review if you're on Apple Podcast? Even just saying, this podcast is interesting <laughs> is helpful, right? So Reviews really help authors. So go leave me also a review of my book, F the Shoulds, Do the Once. Go leave Cindy a review. Go leave reviews for all the people whose works you love. And don't worry too much about what you're saying. Just having a review there, re- more reviews really does matter. And But also, yeah, like speak from your heart. Don't worry about what you got to say. Share it, share it, share it. All right, ready, set, here we go. So I love talking about how you grew up, and I especially like to know about the teenage years. So you can start there earlier, but I just think teenage years are interesting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. that so much can happen there where we are starting to figure out like, who am I? What am I going to be? And, you know, you got to go to college or you got to do this or you got to do that. So like, what was life like for you? And did you have any idea of who you were going to be in the world? Uh, you're probably not going to like this answer, but I think I did. <laughs> that, I, I love it. I, I love it either I way. Like, so, you know, and I talk about this a bit in the book, but I, I grew up poor. There's no other way to put it. I grew up poor, never lacking love, never lacking family, not really lacking anything, but we just didn't have money. We didn't have a lot of money. And so, you know, I would go to summer camps and I remember at one point, this is a complete ramble, but I remember going to summer camp and all the equipment was uh, rusted. And one, there was like this, this rusted tunnel that fell over and I still have the scar on my inner thigh from it. So I was like, does everybody go to camps like this? Nonetheless, that was the last of my camp experience. But, you know, I'm the youngest, I have older brothers. So there was always a bit of growing up sort of being a a bit of a hanger on with them. You know, my oldest brother's nine years older. They didn't really want to hang out with their youngest sister or their only sister, but they had to, because my mom wasn't going to have that game. She's like, yeah, you can go, but you have to take your sister who's six, (laughs) you know, which of course is no fun. So there was a lot of that. So interestingly enough, when I was growing up, we actually owned a video arcade. So I know, I know it's pretty bad. Wait a minute though, because now I'm getting confused with video arcade. I know, I know. Sorry. Arcade. Games, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. penny candy. Was video? Gr- oh, because it's just video card. It was because that was video that's what they were called back. Of, video, right. video, my video mind games. is. <laughs> 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 You're like, I'm so confused. Video game. So it was a video arcade. So an Got arcade. Yeah, maybe what the kids call it. Today. <laughs> I love that. That's that's what that's what tripped you up. Because um, I was also I was like video store and arcade at the same time. <laughs> No, it was an arcade. So we had a pool table. We had video games. We sold penny candy. It was all it wow. was the 80s. It was the 80s. Wait, and also, and on, where did you grow up? 
I grew up in New Jersey, Southern Jersey, Central Jersey. And the arcade was so spectacular. And in hindsight, I didn't realize how cool my mom was in the 80s because all of my brothers were older. So the entire arcade was painted bright yellow. She let my brothers, uh, who were were very, at the time, into Run DMC and breakdancing when it originally started. She let their friends come over and spray paint the entire inside. So they tagged up the entire inside of the arcade. And it was sort of the center of the neighborhood. So my mom became kind of everyone's mom or grandma, even though at the time, weirdly, she was only in her 30s, late 30s or early 40s. But she really became sort of the neighborhood mama, um, where she would bribe the local kids for good grades. So we had Italian ice at the arcade. And so for every A, you got a scoop of Italian ice. So the goal really became getting the largest Italian ice possible. So, which is oh, how my you mom, get one scoop per one A. Scoop so per, if you come yes. in with she five A's, A's. Oh, yeah. God. And it's not like, oh, you were doing them at different time. Like, here you go. Oh, no. You're going to get, get all one at one really amazing. large. Yeah. Italian ice. Yeah. One really long. And I really love that napkins. too, because I feel like I struggled a lot with as a kid is what is, is it okay to be smart to raise my hand? What does that mean about me? What are people going to think about me? Like, like, like I had that, those thoughts and like, she's like, like show it. <laughs> also, you know, it was the neighborhood we grew up in. You weren't, it wasn't expected that you were going to do really well in school. And my mom was not having that, you know, she's like, oh, you can absolutely do well in school. And here, let's see if this works. And it absolutely worked until And the, not just with her own closed. kids. Oh no, she took on everybody else's. Amazing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She took on everybody, the neighborhood, the neighborhood's kids. To this day, actually, she passed in 2020 and one of the, fo- now it was in the midst of the pandemic and in the midst of the pandemic, we could only have 30 people at my mom's service. Um, and one of those people was somebody who grew up with us at the arcade and hadn't seen my mom in 15 years and sent a message or 20 years and sent a message and said, can I please come? And he spoke about my mom and this era of t- like kind of how important that was, um, because I don't know that she or any of us really understood the impact of who she was on this entire neighborhood of teenage boys, mostly at the time. So that's really about my mom. I just got so emotional, like full chills and crying <laughs> almost because, yeah, she likely knows she's making an impact with that, but too, but it also feels like in today's world, I feel like there's so much this focus of like how, like, you know, dream big, go do this, whatever. The impact your mother had on the, you know, and you don't need to own an, your own business to do to do what she did, but like what deep impact she created in real people's lives by the person she was and doing something as small, but as huge as that. Like, right. I feel like we stop ourselves so much as if like, you're, you got to dream big and like, what is that? But like these small ways we can really be creating deep impact in people's lives. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this was 30 years later that he said, can I please come? I want to pay respects to, you know, he called her mama because, you know, again, neighborhood mom. But I share that with you to really speak to kind of who I grew up with. Because when you ask the question, did I know kind of what I would turn into or some version of that? The answer is yes. I had a mother who taught me that I could do anything. And she believed that. And, you know, if I drew something, it was fantastic. Now she wouldn't lie. <laughs> she didn't bullshit. She, but she would, she wanted me to really explore every option. And I think partially because she couldn't. You know, it was the socioeconomic situation she was in. It was being with my father at a, you know, at a stage where it was barely legal. Um, Yeah, but I I grew up with a mother who just deeply stood by me and taught me that I could be and do anything. And I remember when I was a teenager, I just didn't dress like everybody else. You know, at one point I thought it was the 1960s and I would wear these fishnet bell bottoms and these big plastic earrings which all sounds fine, except no one else was wearing this. Like no one else in this neighborhood was wearing those kind of clothing, you know, that kind of clothing. And I just remember her saying, don't ever change. Don't ever change. Don't ever feel like you have to be anyone else. Keep being yourself, keep being yourself. And so that was sort of a mantra that I grew up with. And so she gave me permission to be me and to expect more of myself. And I think people from the outside may have expected of us, meaning of the folks that grew up in the community I grew up in. Um, and, and the way that she treated others was the way that she treated her kids. You know, she just had a certain standard and an expectation 
And I think when you are raised with someone who has expectations, we often rise to meet them when done with love. So we grew up, so I am biracial, Black, Jewish. My mom is Jewish. And we grew up in a town that was very heavily Latino and more Black then than it is now. Uh, Now it's mostly Dominican. But at the time, you know, I looked the way I looked, but I couldn't speak Spanish. And so that was weird. Where my brothers had kinkier hair. Like my brothers looked more black than I did. You know, my hair was curly. I had freckles. So the way the way it works in my family is the younger you get, the the sort of softer your hair gets and the lighter your skin gets. So it's just a weird genetics thing. It's what happened. So I was always expected to speak Spanish and didn't. And I sort of grew up feeling a little bit like an oddball because of that. So I think by the time I made it, I went to school in New York City. I went to FIT, which is the Fashion Institute of Technology. And I often say that I grew up in New York City because of that, because I remember going to my high school reunion. I think it was my 10 or 15 year high school reunion. And no one even knew I had curly hair because I'd straightened my hair the entire up, up through high school. Wow. So everyone just assumed I always had straight hair. And it wasn't until I was 19 uh, and at some point in FIT that I started to leave my hair because at the time you didn't see this kind of hair as often. But it's really at that point that I feel like I started to fall into understanding who I was, um, at least having a better understanding of who I was. And because the city is so big and, and diverse, I never felt like I had to fit in anywhere. And even though I had a mother that always taught me that I didn't need to, I think it's very different when you are um, in an area where you really don't feel like you need to, where everyone looks and sounds differently and it's perfectly normal. That wasn't where I came from. And so there was something really freeing and magical about that experience, which is why I will always say like, it's, you know, I grew up in New York. I love that. And totally different, my own backstory and background. But I went to college and I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, and was like, I mean, I'm white, but it was pretty much all white. I didn't even know what Jewish, I didn't even know that being Jewish was a different religion. Like, right, right. <laughs> I also, get, it's also a culture, <laughs> but yes. Yeah, or, right. Thank you. But like, I like knew like there was a Jewish bagel or Jewish deli we went to sometimes, whatever. But like, anyway, yeah, there was very little like color that I saw. There was like one or two black girls in my school. But anyway, regardless of that, when I moved to Chicago for liberal arts community, or, um, yeah, not community college, uh, like, why am I forgetting? Anyway, a liberal arts college in downtown Chicago and being in Chicago and also with like different people interested in arts and stuff too. Like I realized the way I dressed or like not like, I think that I was like, yeah, like taking off those layers of the, what should I, this be dressing in, like wanting to fit in and stand out that I felt in high school and like battled. And then being in a diverse city and around diverse people, people let me really play with that in different ways from especially what I wore and what I did with my hair even or different things. Um, So it's different, but I I remember feeling that too. So I'm guessing you went to FIT, so you were interested in fashion. I did, yes. So I had worked several jobs from the time I was 16. So the job that I held from 16 until I finally left was at Gap Kids, where I met one of my dearest friends who I'm still friends with today. But I, you know, around the holidays, I would work two jobs. I remember being so excited to get a job. I was like, I can earn my own money. And again, as I said, you know, we grew up with no money, but I never felt a lack necessarily. But if I wanted fancy things, I'd have to buy them. Fancy meant the gap. So I'd worked, I'd worked in retail and I knew that I would go to school for fashion. I actually started out going to my community college for two years because we couldn't afford to send me to FIT right Well, that's what I was also like, whoa, like that's kind of sounds like a school that would Take a chunk of change. (laughs) Well, and the other thing was, even though I was only 30 miles away, I had to pay out-of-state tuition. So there was a fashion program at my community college. Apparently, that's not the way it is today, by the way, but it was then. So there was a fashion program. So I went to this fashion program at my community college for two years and then transferred to FIT. I ended up going back to FIT later for my master's degree in business. But uh, I spent a whole career. It's been a 15, I say 15, but it's somewhere between 15 and 17 years in the fashion industry in New York City until. I sort of imploded that when I was 35, but my whole career, like everything I'd ever known up until that point was fashion. My internships were fashion. I went to FIT. 
I studied abroad in a fashion forecasting company. Uh, like everything I did, I worked in fashion. It was and what did all you do? Yeah, I what known. did you do in fashion and all those? I'm sure you did different roles, perhaps. But yeah, like yeah, that's a long career in fashion. It was interesting. I mean, when I was in college, I I was a fit model, so I did a lot of fit modeling. But once I finished school, I've, I'd been in product development my whole career for accessories. So I spent a long part of my career coach doing product development. So from the age of like 22, I'd gotten used to maybe 23 was my first trip to Asia, but I spent a lot of time on business flight trips around the world, working with, you know, the artisans or the factories. And as my, as I sort of moved around the fashion industry a little bit, it it evolved from China and Korea to Italy but I had a spectacular career in fashion doing product development. And it was really this sort of liaison between the design team and the actual people who were making the goods, you know? So you had to be able to, to have some level of being able to speak both languages, you know? And I think in many ways that was very transferable to everything that I did afterwards and still do today. It's the ability to situationally lead and have conversations with different people in different situations and scenarios and feel comfortable doing it. And I attribute a lot of that to the role that I had in the fashion industry for so long. And truly, I I don't think I could do what I do today if it were, even though it's completely different, if it weren't for the career that I had before. So I always like to remind folks that when you're pivoting, if you do something different, it doesn't mean that you let go of everything you did before. You have a career of of skills that you've earned, you know? I love that. And it's interesting because I was a live sound engineer as my first dream career and traveled all over the world doing that and loved it. Um, and then, yeah, imploded my own life well, <laughs> with a sudden loss of my father's death, actually created that. But so just yesterday, I was for the first time tying together my background in sound in like this deeply listening to the work that I have then created since then. Mm, See, it (laughs) always circles back. Like in like, I haven't even sorted it out enough in my mind right now, but like, whoa, (laughs) always being able to really tune into those multiple layers and like weed out what it's too noisy or doesn't matter. Yeah. Like what's, I don't know. Interesting. So I love that you said that. And I get that. Yeah. Like being able to relate to the different people and like find this connectedness on you're wanting this product or creating these items. And um, yeah, like how, how interesting of a skill you were developing that I don't like probably while you were doing it. I don't know if you realized maybe. No, what I don't think I, that was or a gift. Like to- <laughs> no, I think it's just what I had to do. You know, when you're meeting so many people from around the world, mind you, I didn't get on a flight for the first time until I was 21. So to be getting on an international flight when I was 23 to fly straight across the world was like a, a bizarre experience. But it also, yeah, I don't think I ever realized what I was learning at the time, but I, I didn't feel like I had much of a choice, right? This was my job and I had to learn how to communicate and get things done in, in ways that would sort of benefit everyone involved. And so I learned how to be a bit of a chameleon in that way. So what happened that <laughs> was like, no more fashion? <laughs> yeah, so it was spring 2013 fashion week. Uh, we were showing in, um, in the city. And I remember being in the office at 2 a.m. the night before the show. And the designer that I was working with at the time wanted a new pair of pants made which, you know, fine, do what you want. It's 2 a.m., but that's, this is what it is. And I remember everyone around me at the time there was style.com, which doesn't exist anymore, but it would drop all of the latest runway shows from New York Fashion Week, kind of, I think it was live at the time. So there was this buzz in the studio at the time and, and folks were really excited and they were watching every show in the midst of working on everything for our show the next day. And I just remember looking around and going, I don't give a shit. I don't care what anybody else is doing. I want to go home and go to sleep. But everyone else was on such a high for everything that was happening. And I just was not there. So it was sort of the first, I wouldn't say it was the first inkling, but it was definitely a moment that I think solidified that this isn't where I should be. I had done, uh, and no one should, I do not recommend this unless you intend to implode your life. I ended up taking a yoga teacher training yoga and meditation teacher training. And then I did, I did again. that when I quit my life. 
<laughs> it's terrible. I mean, it's not actually terrible, but here's the thing. You go in thinking, I'm just going to learn the philosophy of this. I already have a job. And next thing you know, you're like, fuck all this. None of it matters. And that's what happened. But wait, um, wait, wait. So did you, did you quit everything and then take the yoga? No, no, no. So got it. So, so I had already taken. So I, I had quit first and then I was like, let me do this oh. while I have time off. But <laughs> no, in but my I, case, it, I, I really think it was partially out of boredom, maybe because I did my first yoga teacher training before I went back to school, back to graduate school. And I think I was 29 then. Um, and so I think I was just always seeking something, but didn't know what. So then I did the first yoga teacher training, like a 300 hour. Then I went to graduate school and that kept me busy for two years. And then after that, I was like, you know, I'm just going to go back and I'm going to do the like a 500 hour yoga teacher training. I think I was just seeking, but at the end of it, there was no un, there was no not seeing what I had seen and what I'd come to know about myself. And there was a much deeper clarity of my own values. And I remember looking around the showroom that night and thinking, this ain't it. Just because I can doesn't mean I have to. And also it wasn't going to get better than this. You know, I was heading up product development for accessories at a luxury firm. I was flying to Italy and staying in vineyards and, you know, meeting all these artisans. I mean, every shoe brand that you know of, we met with them and we worked with them and it was spectacular. But I also was so clear. I'm like, it's not going to get any better. So if this ain't it, you got to go. And so it was, I gave, I think I waited a few days because no one really works the day after the show. I mean, they're too busy waiting to see what the reviews are. Um, I waited a few days, I think. And then I finally just handed over my notice and said, I'll stay for two more weeks, but I'm done. And I knew at the time that I had to commit internally to leaving the fashion industry. So I couldn't, if I left, I'd find another job. You know, I had been good enough at what I did. I was very good at what I did and I could find something else, but I had to internally commit. And so I did. And I didn't know what I was going to do for that first year. Like I really had no other plans. I did not have money to lean back on. I did have a 401k. Um, but as I said, you know, I took this yoga teacher training and I remember teaching classes in my Brooklyn apartment and there were like the same six people would come once a week and we would do this hour and a half long meditation and yoga. And we, I would make a pot of chai afterwards, literally these folks were like pushing the furniture around in my living room and then fixing it before they left because it was my home, you know, it was, it was my apartment. And I think that even that, right, this sort of middle space, that whole next year was a real middle space of me having to figure out what I was going to do. And I did have some savings, so I knew I would be okay for a little while, but the ability to teach these intimate classes in my apartment, I think, again, un announced to me at the time really became a part of the teaching that I went on to do later. Trisha here bringing you a brief interruption because I got some exciting news for you. My favorite skincare line, Blissoma, which is authentic green beauty. Authentic. There's so many brands out there that are just like, hey, we're clean, we're green, we have the best ingredients, we don't have this, we have that. And a lot of it is BS because it's not regulated. Blissoma is legit and it's cutting edge chemistry. It meets traditional herbal knowledge for the best of both worlds. Everything's made in-house in small batches. Their original recipes offer a huge range of phytonutrients that benefit every skin need, including sensitivities and painful skin problems. Their products create balance within the skin and body, and they are formulated to allow customers to proactively and naturally manage a variety of skin issues, including acne, eczema, sensitivity, stress, and aging through the nutrients their products contain. So they gave me a new code to get 30% off a trial set. So you can go, they have different trial skin sets that will have like, you know, a cleanser and moisturizer, different products in it. I think it's about four products in each set for different skin needs. And so you can get 30% off a trial set with code claim a trial set. Now, maybe you're already in there. You're already testing products out. I also have a code claim it 20 to get 20 off, 20% off anything in the moisturizing category. So their moisturizers are actually some of their best sellers. I, for so long, was using just oils and like serums, and I do love those. 
But the thing is, with a lot of natural skincare brands, the moisturizers, again, they were using not so great ingredients to create the emulsifying. Blasoma does not do that. That is one of the big differentiators between their line and many other organic and natural lines. Most other lines dump in words that I cannot say. <laughs> if they're going to make a cream which, and other questionable natural quote unquote ingredients to make and stabilize the emulsion. So the thing is though, oils are great, serums are great, but a lot of people will see improvements to their skin when they're using a moisturizer because the moisturizers have water in them too. And you can actually dehydrate your skin when you're just using oils and balms. So go check out their moisturizers and use Claim It 20 for 20% off. All right, let's get back to the episode. That's blissoma.com. You can use Claim It 20 for 20% off moisturizers. Claim a trial set for 30% off trial sets. So, okay. And before you quit the fashion industry, had you taught yoga? I mean, I know you had done all the trainings, but no. was it? Right. So that's, I, I didn't think so. And so then you <laughs> quit, you don't know, right. You quit, but you don't know what you're doing. What leads you then to say, hey, let me lead some yoga in my apartment? Like every, a million bajillion people have yoga certifications now yes, when we're yes. talking. It was less so then, but yes. Right, right. But still, but a million bajillion people have it now and they are not doing a damn thing with it. Maybe they don't want to. They don't want yeah, to, whatever, but same thing. <laughs> you didn't want to either, but they could be, again, they might be in that middle space too. But like, what made you be like, I will, maybe I'll try to do this and in my apartment, like- <laughs> Well, I had a I had a lovely loft space. I knew I had the space for it, all things considered, you know, relative to apartments in Brooklyn. I had the space for it and I needed to be doing something. I couldn't just sit around and do nothing. There's only so many museums you can go to. Like at some point, you're just like, Cindy, you're at 35 and you don't have a fucking job. Like you don't have a job. So I knew I had to really do something. And I think that was my way of just trying to busy myself. I knew that I could teach yoga. I mean, I, I knew that I was trained for it and I had, I don't think I'd ever, actually, you know, that is not true. You just reminded me that I went back to coach and taught yoga there. Like it was corporate. I rem I forgot about that. I went back and taught yoga. So when I gave my notice, that I must like, have been, I forgot. Was that like, it yeah, awesome. it was weird and awesome. Yeah. I, I was gonna <laughs> forgot. It was on the rooftop. Yes, I taught yoga at Coach. So I had taught yoga before. I mean, I don't know how great I was, though. I did end up getting a, a two private clients. And you know what? I think I knew I was good. I must have known I was good enough to like teach it in my apartment because as you're reminding me, I actually did teach, teach yoga. Well, and I don't even think the like, I wasn't even asking about the fact of like, hoping and knowing you're good enough to teach the yoga, yeah. but yeah. the goal yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And I like, who did you tell? Like, did you just invite your friends? Because also, too, I have found, and this can be true for me. <laughs> so when I'm talking about other people, it's true for me and others, that many people, too, we can be afraid to do the thing we want to do more around people we knew. Like, I would feel more comfortable like, hey, some strangers meet me in the park. But instead of like asking my friends, like, <laughs> you know, like, so did you ask friends? Like, yeah, like that also like, it's not even I about- did. Yeah, it was friends of mine. Honestly, I knew that. So I had a pretty strong yoga practice at the time. I knew that some of my friends wanted to practice and wouldn't go to a studio. I don't think it ever crossed my mind that I shouldn't be comfortable with it. I, I felt like I had this knowledge and I could teach it. And it wasn't, it never felt like an about me thing. It felt like it was teaching something that I'd learned and I was always very transparent, you know, everybody there knew what I had done for a living and kind of my own background. I don't think it ever occurred to me to feel like it was anything out of the ordinary to do. I have the skills to do it and I can. So I don't think it took much call. It was just like, do you want to do this? And enough people said yes. And I thought, okay, then let's do this. Awesome. And maybe that also has to come from how you were raised with like your mom putting that deep, you know, belief in you. Maybe. But yeah, like why not? You know, <laughs> it, it's honestly, it just never. And I would say that that has stood true about a lot of things I've done. It didn't occur to me that I shouldn't do those things or that, that, that it's something that somebody else would question or be like, wow. 
No, yeah, no. I mean, why would they? It's yeah, no, it, it didn't occur to me. And I think a lot of times maybe it's, it's, I mean, I don't think I'm a naive person, but maybe it's a little bit of naivete where I just feel like, well, if I can, then why wouldn't I? Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't feel like it took anything extra special out of me to do that. It was something I can do and I did, and it was fantastic. And so what ended up evolving from yeah, this middle year, I think you were referring to yeah, that. And yeah, <laughs> this, this middle year, if I don't know what I'm doing uh, as a grown-ass person. So what, I, and I believe this to be true almost all of the time, we are often called to make decisions, right? To just do something. We don't have to know exactly what it is, but we have to take action. And that taking action and teaching that class, I feel very much somehow led to one of my graduate school professors called me and said, I think you should be teaching at FIT. He's like, you'd be amazing. Like you have so much to offer. I think you should be teaching. So again, I didn't, I didn't know that I shouldn't be. It didn't occur to me that this was a special thing to be able to teach at FIT. Um, and I was an excellent adjunct professor. And one of the folks that, you know, when you, when you teach at a college, you are then observed by other faculty. And one of the faculty members who observed me also taught at Parsons, and he eventually asked if I would come teach at Parsons, which is another uh, design school in New York City. And so I did. I just kept sort of accepting the offers that came in. But I think that that tiny yoga class in my apartment really led to a certain confidence in speaking publicly and speaking aloud that by the time I started teaching at FIT, it felt very natural. Um, more so by the time I started speaking at Parsons. And I remember that somebody from the yoga world, from my the studio that I was going to at the time, had just left her job and wanted to start a fashion brand. And she reached out and asked if I would consult with her on it. And I said, of course, I'll consult with you on it. This is all I know. So I ended up probably 18 months after quitting the first part of my life, uh, after quitting, starting something called The Collective of Us. And it was initially folks that were small business owners, particularly focused on the fashion industry. And I would just get them together. Again, I think back to what I did in my apartment with those yoga and meditation classes. You'd get these strangers together. We would, you know, I would talk about my experience in the fashion industry. Everybody would be able to ask questions. They would be able to rely on one another. I feel like now you actually see this a lot more than you did then. Um, but yeah, I started this thing called The Collective of Us and it, it went on for three years and it was great. And I think, again, like so much of that started with me teaching this sort of silly yoga class. It wasn't silly, but I think it can feel like, well, where the hell did that come from? Um, and it really did connect very much to what I ended up going on to do. And because I had then really built you know, I take the the skills that I had learned in the fashion industry, which was these sort of connecting the dots and connect, like understanding and communicating with folks that maybe didn't feel like they had anything in common with each other. Um, so there was that piece of it. And then teaching that yoga class and teaching students at Parsons and FIT really allowed me to become more confident in my voice. So at some point, I remember teaching Somebody asked me to talk about my background because at the time I only spoke about fashion. I had nothing else to talk about and sort of leaving the fashion industry. And uh, somebody asked me to speak and I had never spoken on a stage before that. And I swear I just came alive. I didn't stumble over my words. I was not uncomfortable at all. I was happy to ask questions. I mean, it was amazing. And again, I attribute it to these small steps that I took along the way. Like to this day, people will say, Cindy, are you media trained? And I'm like, I don't even know what that means. I do. Now I know what it means because a friend of mine is an, an on-air personality. But I, I think it was really for me about taking these small steps that led to the next thing and being willing to accept the next thing, whether I was fully prepared or not. And so after speaking at that one conference, I was invited a lot more to speak at other conferences. And eventually they got bigger and bigger and bigger until up until right up until the pandemic, where that was the primary part of my business. And I made a lot of money doing it. And it was awesome. And I love it. And I still love it. And what were you primarily speaking about? Was it still involved in fashion? No, 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 okay. no. At that, at that point, it had all transitioned. I didn't think um, so, but I wasn't sure where it went. Yeah, it, it was, much of it was about our voice, like confidence in using our voice and kind of uh, it, it really 
relied very much on what I had been learning over the past few years. And I say this to people who want to speak. I say, teach what you know. You know, you're only an expert in your lived experience. You're not expected to know everything, but teach what you know. And I I did a workshop. I there was one session, a keynote that I would do on confidence, another one that I would do with on, um, and I still do this one, understanding your voice and your vibe in the workplace. There was another one on uh, collaboration that I still do as well, which is teaching folks how to collaborate using many of my own lived experiences within this. And I, the last, the one that, I mean, I still speak, but the one I did right before the pandemic shut down was for 3000 people in Las Vegas. And it was awesome, you know, and, and none of this was anything that I could have foreseen when I was moving to New York for the first time. And, you know, allowing my hair to go natural. Yeah. Amazing. And I love hearing all the steps that it did naturally evolve into, like all the pieces coming together. I love that. So where did writing books come from? Because your now second book yeah. <laughs> is, I believe when this is coming out, it's like coming out that same week. So, <laughs> so Micro yes. Joys is the new one, Finding Hope, especially when life is not okay, but that's not your first one. No. So the first book came out in 2018. So again, think back to what I just said a few minutes ago, how one step led to the next. And I just kept saying yes. So I was delivering a talk in New York City and somebody from a publisher was there and they reached out. I know this all sounds ridiculous, the likelihood of this happening, but this is what happened. Um, Somebody from a publisher was there. She reached out. Actually, we ended up She was also biracial black. And when black people are in a room, they will find each other and they will connect with each other and they will keep connecting with each other. We ended up going out for drinks. She lived in Brooklyn as well. We ended up going out for drinks and she said, Hey, do you want to write a book about this? And it was, Oh, and somewhere in between, I was certified in positive psychology. I forgot about that. But she's like, Oh, do you, would you want to write a book about this from sort of a a lay person's perspective? And I was like, Yeah, sure. I mean, why not? And I had seven weeks to write the book. Seven so weeks. Seven weeks. Uh, the book came out before the holiday season of 2018, and it has sold hundreds of thousands of copies. It's called A Year of Positive Thinking. And it is, I mean, I, I will always, I'm sure, get messages from folks just saying this book has changed my life. This is the third year that I'm going through it. You just don't know the impact of what you put into the world. It was not rocket science, that book. I'm like stuck. Like, I'm still like seven weeks. Um. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, my first book came out last year, too. And I was like, definitely not take seven weeks. No, seven not weeks. micro joys either. This was very different. But also, is the seven weeks including the time to figure out what is it? So that person must have said, do you want to write a book about this? And it was a talk about positivity or, so, or, or was positive it, you know, thinking. so it was like, okay, yeah, write a book about positive thinking. How long did it take you to get to the idea for a year and like the format of it? She and I worked together on it and it was pretty much in the contract when I signed it. Got it. And so, and what is the format? Is it like, yeah, you pick this book up and you're starting with a year of like, you're whatever. Starting so with if January I, one. Oh. January 1. It's literally 365 days. It is quotes. It's excerpts. It is um, sayings from me. It's 365 ways of thinking more positively. So, But it's like, like there's dates for each page. So I would like, oh, if you buy it right now, you could turn to February, whatever the date is and see what your Correct. message is for that day. Yeah. So Very cool. there's no year in it, but which is why people will literally every year around the new year, I know I'm going to get tagged a lot in a year of positive thinking because folks just keep doing it over and over. And it's not an exercise book so much as like a thought. I love you know, it. something for you to ponder and, and a little so, nugget, <laughs> a little nugget. That's, that's all it is. And it's very gifty and it's very cute. And a lot of folks have, have purchased that book. And then 2020 happened um, and everything sort of fell apart. Uh, My nephew was murdered on May 29th, 2020. It was the same week that George Floyd was killed in the U.S. that sort of kicked off the global stage for Black Lives Matter. Um, And that was just shocking. That does not happen to you until it does. You know, having somebody murdered in your family is something that happens in true crime. It's something that happens on TV. It doesn't happen to you until it does. And I remember after my nephew was killed and I talked about it for a little while. And I remember I had very firm boundaries and I I think I always have. I remember thinking I'm no longer willing to talk about him in public in this way, because it was important to me to separate 
what was happening on the inside with what I was sharing in the public. And it's very easy for people to want to, you know, it's trauma porn. People are very, it's, it's sort of like watching a train wreck. You know, we're all so curious. I don't think it makes people bad, but we're all deeply curious. And I remember just feeling like, okay, that's it. I'm not going to talk about him publicly anymore. And so I started talking about these micro joys because what was true for me at the time was everything that I talked about in a year of positive thinking, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I, I didn't know that sort of grief. And I had always been, I have always been an optimist, but I couldn't reach for anything at that point. And it really became like, what is in front of me right now? What is in front of me right now? Just to break these moments of grieving and sorrow and you know, what ended up happening very shortly after four months later, my mom passed away unexpectedly. So it just became one thing after the next, after the next. And as an optimist, I needed something, but the idea of thinking positively was not going to cut it. It just wasn't going to cut it. Not because anything in a year of positive thinking isn't true. It will always be true, but it's a matter of where I was in my own life. And I couldn't, I couldn't think positively. And what I eventually went on to realize was that I didn't want to find a silver lining and losing some of the most important people in my life. After that, my brother went into cardiac arrest and spent two and a half months in the ICU. I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Like it just life kept coming. And I remember thinking like, I am absolutely not going to try and trivialize these losses or find a silver lining. Like, no, I'm I'm not glad that my mom's out of pain. Like there's stuff like that, that I think people say, and they think they're, or at least she's at peace think. now. At least she's at peace. I'm like, no, I'd like her here on like calling me and harassing me the way she always did. Like that, that's just, they're not suffering anymore. Yeah. Th- those sort of things, those pithy things that somebody somewhere taught taught us to say to grieving people, we, um, at some point I'll write a book to say, these are the things you'd never do to grieving people, but that's in the future. It's Back needed. To it's needed. Go f- like, Back please go for it. Um, Trisha here propping in with another brief interruption to tell you about, remind you of some other ways that I'm here to support you besides this podcast, which by the way, if you're new here, there's so many incredible episodes. Go back and listen to the old ones. So I also have a daily inspiration app that you can get in the Apple or Google Play store that has hundreds of powerful thoughts and affirmations. It is called Own Your Awesome. I have a from the heart substack where you can subscribe And join me, I send four to five both written and short audio uh, messages from my heart. They're like pep talks, heart talks, mind talks. That's at trishahuffman.substack.com. All the links will be in the show notes. My book, F the Shoulds, Do the Once. You gotta get it. You gotta read it. It's both in audio form, paperback, digital. Go to ftheshouldsdothewants.com to find all the links to where to buy it. Besides, you know, just go to wherever you buy your books and search for ftheshouldsdothewants.com. I also have some products in my shop. They're going away. So if you go to my shop, I can't um, guarantee that what you see there today will be there next week or next month. So go to shop.yourjoyologist.com and also feel free to DM me or email me If you are feeling called to have some real loving guidance, support, accountability in your life, I work with people both one-on-one and in group containers to have you get clear on your life to what is your vision, what's working for you, what's not, so that you can actually show up for yourself and the life that you want and enjoy it. I especially love working with people who have work they're putting out in the world to keep them aligned to their vision doing it their way, and again, keeping them accountable to themselves because the world is noisy, our brains are noisy, and so we talk ourselves out of things all the time and get lost in the shoulds. So I will bring you back to you and keep you showing up for what you want to create in the world. And if you're already putting stuff out in the world, to hold you to that and so that you don't get lost. What I've seen time and time again is people do put their work out in the world and it goes well. And then they start to end up with imposter syndrome, looking around, looking outside of themselves, looking to please other people instead of coming back to 
who am I? What do I want to offer? So I am there to keep you connected to you, hold that vision for you, keep you in alignment and loving accountability. All right, let's get back to the episode. So I just remember sort of, and this this really, I think, just came from my, my being an optimist. Like I needed something to break those moments. I needed these moments of respite. So I would go through a photo album, you know, and find pictures of my mom or my nephew, or I'd scroll through images from my phone and I might see a flower that was somehow blooming in the middle of a snowstorm. Like just these somewhat ordinary things that were within reach. I couldn't, I couldn't reach for anything. I couldn't pull anything out of anywhere, but I could see the things that were in front of me. And so it ended up becoming maybe two and a half years. I'm really just coming out of it of reframing my own way of accessing joy. And so when I describe microjoys, which is the name of the book, it's it's honing the ability to access joy despite all else. So what it is, is it's really about how do we hold joy in one hand and grief in the other at the exact same time. And I think that sometimes positive psychology can get misconstrued to be toxic positivity, this sort of um, good vibes only mentality that doesn't leave any space for bad vibes, for people dying, for being in a, you know, quarantined for two years, for it doesn't leave space for that. And I remember these moments of feeling ashamed because I had written this best-selling book about this topic and I couldn't do it. So it had the opposite effect. And I think that so much of, of the positivity that we see, and I was a part of it too. So this is this is not pointing the finger at other people. I think it's just an evolution in who I am and my own lived experience where I understand how problematic that can be because I felt shame about it and I didn't know what to do if I couldn't feel good. And so micro joys really became about allowing myself to sit with everything that was really difficult at length and then also offering myself the respite of looking for these things that would bring me joy very consciously looking for them, taking pictures of things, documenting them, going back through documents, sitting for five minutes and just looking at my, the, you know, the room that I was in at the time. Um, so that was a long windy way to tell you how micro joys came to be. No, I love it. And the way that you speak of it is so well worded and makes so much sense because I have been trying to share similar message for years and same thing. Some, and a lot of my messages in the past were definitely maybe leaned a little bit more on the toxic positivity side as well. And I'm like, yeah, like I even have an affirmation deck and I now read some of them like, okay. Um, Questionable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. But like can see, but also to some person they're like, yes, still. You like so, it. it's like and it's not like it's not. The, I didn't. I didn't put evil out into the world. Yes, enough, but like yes, and um, but no, I, I and yeah, you worded it so well because that's and my, which by the way, reading your, I don't know if it's the the intro or whatever, the very first thing in your book, the preface, preface, all the loss, yes, which you then said there, but then but reading it so closely in that book, I'm someone who doesn't like I'm very great at t- not just hearing and like understanding a whole space and not taking on like it like that I was like Jesus like crying at all of that loss in it's just compounded but anyway the work that I went when I gave up my career of sound that I loved and the had whatever was from my dad passing away suddenly and that was one loss <laughs> And uh, yeah, he was 57 at the time and young, and it was an accident and a surprise, but it wasn't murder. It was an accident, but yeah, like really shook me up. But from there is like totally changed the path of my life. And so going there was also seeing like I worked for people that had it all. Like I was living my dream and then I was like working for Grammy Award and winning artists that were really had it all and really living their dream life and still seeing how much the human condition of pain and suffering and what should I do next in this. And so period, people living their biggest dreams and what's the point because you're not enjoying it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so like Mm -hmm. still chasing that worthiness enoughness assessment or success feeling of fulfillment i'm stumbling all over my words that's okay yeah i like assessment i like that word it should be a word (laughs) i'm making up new words left and right over here um but seeing like yeah we're so often like chasing it but so like how can we have access to those own things or like yeah life is not like life isn't fair 
terrible things happen every day. We don't know what's going to happen. Life isn't fair. Full stop. Life isn't fair. (laughs) And, And so it isn't like, well, then give up. But like, yeah, how can you make some space for some joy today? Like, how can you connect with your own feelings of fulfillment? It's not like out there, once I do the thing, once I have this credit, once I check off all the items on my to do list. So I've also moved into like joy and fulfillment. But yeah, it's an interesting thing to like talk about. I and mean, like, okay, yes, you've just watched this massacre in the world, but like, go find some joy for you today. That's it. That's it. It's like, you do you, sister. And I'm like, do what? Have you not seen what's happening in the world? What do you want me to do right now? And But yeah, like figuring out that like, and, and that's what I think this book is going to be, so, is going to be so huge. But even just again, like how you're saying it, even just the putting it as micro joys. I think just even adding that word helps to or your brain to understand it's okay to allow myself to find a glimmer of joy while yes, this pain exists, this grief exists, this unfairness exists to me and to others. So that, because it's like, how, how are we going to continue showing up or trying to make a difference or spreading the kindness that your mother did, you know, that made a huge impact if you're not like having that tap, that even the tiniest access to that joy. And I think you you really did a beautiful job of explaining it, right? It's like, if you, we can't do anything worthwhile in the world if we can't hold both of those things, not for very long anyway, it's not sustainable. So I, I remember saying in the book, like, you know, this is a, a, a more sustainable way of experiencing joy for me. Because if I was constantly dishing it out and not taking it in, I couldn't experience joy. If I were pushing away all of the negative things or the perceived bad things that happened, I would not be able to feel the full sort of spectrum of human emotions. And, you know, very few things in life are absolute. You know, we're often holding multiple truths at one time. Always. How can we never, like, like when is, when are we not? (laughs) Right. But, and, and, and I think over the last few years, it's really come under a microscope, how much we are having to hold as humans at one time, everything happening in the world, you know, all of the folks who, who died during the pandemic from COVID, not including everyone else. And, and by the way, all of the losses that I experienced, none of them were COVID related. It just happened to be during a pandemic. But I think more than ever, we really need to be able to hold both things because we don't want to be a hermit under a rock and it's like, la, 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 I don't want to know what's going on in the world. You want to know what's going on in the world because you want to impact change where you can, but not at the expense of yourself. Because if you are not able to hold your own joy and create healthy boundaries, then you can't do for others. And so I, I just, I hope that this book opens up this conversation in a very different way that, that helps to move us away from toxic positivity. And, and the other thing I just want to add is that's not about blaming people who a quote helps, you know, there's a reason that people keep coming back to me every year and saying, Mike Rogers has changed my life because sometimes that's exactly you what mean- we need. Uh, your positive, positive thinking. thinking. Yeah. Sorry, I was forward thinking with micro joys. But <laughs> yes, that is going to be happening in the next coming years. <laughs> Nobody, a year of positive thinking because people start again on January 1. And that's sometimes that is what we need. Sometimes, to your point, we're not, it's not about a scale of like, this is good positivity and this is bad positivity. It's an evolution. It's like, what do you need in this moment? If you need, you know, a sort of quote of the day to help you get there, then rock on. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just where we are at any particular moment. So there's no good or bad. It's just where we are on the spectrum. Totally. And while you said that, it made me think of like one of my, I don't, I like, don't really like the everything happens for a reason things, but sometimes, yeah, that actually like, whatever, maybe I was late because I missed that car accident. Everything happens for a reason, but like, oh, some, someone, whatever passed away or something like, yeah, like for a lot of times I'm like, I go with like, it's happening. Like, that's my sort of thing. It's like, okay, this is what's happening. (laughs) And it makes me face like, okay, so this is what's happening. So what? how am I going to move through it? How am I going to handle it? How, like, whatever. And don't go into denial and la, 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 only joy. Um, but also like, this is what's happening. But and, and speaking to that too, don't you feel that, because yeah, you mentioned too, the like going, you know, hiding from the things and all of that. Don't you feel that as someone who allows yourself to 
to feel all the things and the joy, that it's our potential, like the joy and awe and wonder that I feel now because I allow myself the this sucks, this is hard, all of that. I feel it's even more deeply. It's so much more beautiful. Like I'm getting emotional right now, like, because I see the bush in my yard, in the sunshine, right? Like I feel because I allow that space for all of that, then the joy and likely these micro joy things, again, like they mean so much more. Yeah. There's, there's an acuteness of feeling, right? We feel things more deeply. And I think that that's something I've really learned over the past few years of, of inadvertently honing this mindset of micro joys is that when we allow ourselves to sit deeply in whatever we are going through, which includes the difficult things, the tragic things, the sad things, it allows us to feel everything more acutely. So when these these moments happen, like the bush, you know, that you just talked about, or the light streaming through the window, we notice it. And and I can only speak for myself. And this book is really essays from my own lived experience. But I believe that when we allow ourselves to feel all of it we appreciate the beauty that already exists as well. Again, there's like an acuteness that comes with our feelings from having experienced all things and accepted all things. Love that. And um, speaking of, yeah, that's what I was going to say. I wanted to mention that the framework of the book is like the short essays, like personal stories from your life, which I love that. And I think can be a great way for people like, how many people buy a book but then not read it because it seems like too overwhelming? <laughs> like, yeah. Right. Yeah, and so it's very yeah. easily readable and like open to the pages. And by the way, the kitten story uh, about Jake. <laughs> it's not your, the, the cat from the. His name's Jake. Book. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the little girl that was hilarious. Me I was like, I'm leaving with the cat. I don't know what to tell you. Racked me up and then tried <laughs> to give it away. <laughs> yeah. Nobody, nobody would take him. No one would take Jake. And ended up being great. Great micro joy. My, my cat companion. This is true. <laughs> but but you know, I, I sort of hope that what micro joys offers is the nuance in how we access joy. It's not good vibes only, right? It's saying like these are many, many ways that you can access joy. And there is a nuance to it. You know, even as you talk about the bush, I think you say that in front of the wrong person and they roll their eyes and they're like, a bush, give me a, you know, give me a break. But the truth of the matter is, right, is we allow ourselves to feel beauty differently and to see it and to appreciate and to be present in it differently when we've allowed ourselves to feel the depth of sadness as well. <sighs> Absolutely. I was about to say amen, and I never say amen, so that was weird for me. <laughs> it's probably my head scarf and <laughs> As a recovering Catholic, amen. no, I'm just <laughs> Okay, I'm going to get into the questions that I ask everyone. I'm like, I feel like I would talk to you forever. Oh, <laughs> This first question is feels funny for me. What is a go-to to raise your joy levels? <laughs> micro joys. Yeah. But that's like, yeah, so what are some of your like micro joys? A go-to. Uh, speaking to strangers. When I don't feel great, I will go for a walk and chat up strangers because there's a certain leveling of the scales that happens when you're around other people. I work alone. I work from home. It's very easy to get into my head, you know? And the second that I step out and I will go buy a coffee, even if I don't want the coffee, because I can talk to the barista. And that is what my life has turned into. But truly spe speaking to strangers, you know, it's like, it is so worth this $5 cup of coffee to break my own spell, you know, of where my brain is going. So I do fun. that too. And I like, I do not like running errands, but I will like go run an errand, like being with other humans and that I don't know. And like, yeah, like talking to the checkout person or yeah, walking to get a coffee and like that human interaction, like totally changes everything for me. Even when it's brief, you know, so that that's one, um, not fearing your emotions is another one, like really being able to sit with the all things of what we feel embracing spontaneity, right? So if somebody, if, I don't know, there's a museum exhibition going on around the corner. There's a local art museum and I get an email in my inbox that says it's tonight. I'm like, okay, I'll go. You know, like doing more of that, doing more of, I mean, it's, it's really easy to talk ourselves out of doing things. And sometimes that embracing spontaneity, which I also consider to be a micro joy is saying, shit, I'm going to go to this thing tonight, even though that was not what I woke up thought, you know, thinking that's what I was going to do. So that's another way 
actually have a list. So I'm looking here because (laughs) no shit. I just want to not bullshit you choosing. Oh, this is a good one. Choosing an ordinary place to visit. The list, by the way, is all from the book. It's just my own way of of having it all in front of me. Um, Choosing an ordinary place to visit and really allowing yourself to be present. So in the book, there is um, a spice shop is what the essay is called. It might be one of the first few essays, but it talks about this local spice shop in my neighborhood in Brooklyn. And it's been there for over a hundred years. It's very, very old. And allowing myself to go in there and hear all of the sounds, smell all of the smells, like they have, you know, a bulk section, there's a cheesemonger, there's somebody who has Lebanese foods. Um, Like I'm going to go here. (laughs) There's coffee, there's tea, there's someone else who makes breads, but it was really allowing myself to walk into this shop and experience all of it. Right. I think about how many times I'd walked in and out of there and just picked up the things. I got my number for my nuts. I got my nuts and I walked out. It's a very different experience when you allow yourself to use your five senses to experience someplace. And because I was really at the time learning this sort of idea of micro joys, it didn't occur to me what was happening until later when I thought back about it. And I thought, wow, I can write in such detail about it because I was so present and aware in ways that I normally am not. So even, I mean, look, it doesn't have to be a spice shop in Brooklyn. It could be your Whole Foods or your Trader Joe's or whatever it is. It's take note of what you see, what you smell, what you can touch, the languages you hear, the people that are speaking. And, you know, I've been asked about the level of detail in this book, and I attribute a lot of that to allowing myself to be present in spaces. And also documenting everything, which is coincidentally another way to access joy. Take pictures of the everyday, write the everyday, share stories of the everyday, because when you need to access joy, you have it at your fingertips. Of course, it's not the joy. Um, but when when I look at a picture, for example, it will bring me back to that moment and it pulls me out of whatever difficulty I may be going through in that instant. Love that so much. And the idea of, yeah, going to an ordinary place, but like taking it in a whole different way, really being present with everything. Okay. The next question I ask everybody is, what is easiest for you is not always what is best for you. Can you think of a way to apply that to yourself? So what is easiest for me is blank. What is best for me is blank. Yeah. I mean, the obvious, right? What is easiest for me is to to just not want to do anything that involves physical anything. But what is best is that I just get the mat out and practice yoga. Yeah. It's not easiest. I really don't want to do it most of the time, but it is what's best for me mentally and physically. That's why I live by the mantra of any minutes is more than no minutes. Like, there you so go. Like, okay. Any minutes of yoga or any minute, any, I'll go on any minutes walk. Cause yeah, that's like, right. Oh, I don't minutes. have the time or I'm too tired of this. Yes. Any minutes. And then usually and you're under- motivated to do more than the- <laughs> That's right. Because once you're out there, you're not going to stop, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or sometimes if you really do have a time crunch or whatever, then like, wow, I still feel the impact of that three minutes of stretching. I love or that, any whatever. minutes. Any yeah, minutes. That's, <laughs> that's, that's pretty great. solid. Any Hashtag minutes any is more minutes. than no minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The last question is, the name of the podcast is Claim It, which refers to how I was talking about earlier, how it felt like everybody was chasing like enoughness, fulfillment, success from outside of themselves. And I feel like we're so often trained to do that based on how we think that will look or should look. And so then we really aren't connected to how would that feel? How would it feel? And so when you look at things based on how would it feel, you can actually have access to claiming it, a Mm. glimpse of it in that moment. Mm -hmm. So what are you claiming for yourself right now? Joy. I'm claiming joy and this newfound new version of joy for myself, which is much more accessible and much more sustainable. So that's what I'm claiming. Love it. Thank you so much. I love talking to you so much. And I know that this book, Micro Joys, is going to really create an impact in the world. So thank you for taking all of your pain and your grief and your lived experiences and doing this for yourself and then putting it into this amazing project. And also sharing my joy. Yes, yes. So yes, taking all of that to access your joy and to then turn it into this. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me, really. It's been it's been a treat. You're so welcome. All right. I truly hope you enjoyed that episode. 
Like I said, Cindy is amazing. Go get her book, Micro Joys. You can find all things her at cindyspiegel.com. The link will be in the show notes for all things me. You can go to yourjoyologist.com and I'm mostly at underscore Trisha Huffman on social media, but I got some Your Joyologist accounts and the podcast itself is at Claim It Podcast. Again, it would mean so much to me if you subscribe, leave a review, and also share the episode and tag me, right? These are incredible people that I get to talk to, and I would love for you to share that with your community, with however many people you have in your social media platforms. You never know how you sharing something could make an impact on someone else, right? So um, leave the reviews, (laughs) go get the books, mine and Cindy's. Join me over on my Substack from the heart. It's trishahuffman.substack.com. Hit me up if you are interested in working with me to own your freaking life, to go after your visions, your dreams, to enjoy the life you already have. That's what I see so often. People work so hard to get to this level, to create this work, to put themselves out in the world. And then they sort of lose that joy. So I get it. I'm here for you. And also go check out Blissoma skincare products. You can use code CLAIM TRIAL SET for 30% off the trial skincare sets or CLAIM at 20 for 20% off their moisturizers.